Welcome to Kick the Dogma. I'm your host, John Emmerich. Today on the pod, a book review of Asset Dedication by Stephen Huxley, a professor at University of San Francisco, and a former student of his, Brent Burns. I couldn't get them on the show, so we'll just talk through it. What they present, Asset Dedication, is an alternative to the 60-40 model discussed in the review of Phil Huber's book, Allocator's Edge, and a model that seems to be close to standard in the wealth management industry, sometimes generically called asset allocation, and all that changes are the percentages. 60-40, 70-30, 50-50, etc. I find that latter term unhelpful because I also use the term asset allocation to describe the process of picking bonds versus stocks, domestic versus international, small cap versus large cap, etc. So I'll use 60-40 to call out that strategy compared to the asset dedication strategy outlined in this book. Asset dedication as a strategy, I'll disclose up front, is closely aligned with my own thinking, which I'll get into later in the pod. But let's start with alternative definitions of risk in a story about Brown and Brown. I sat in on a marketing meeting early in my hedge fund career, and this was with a family office founded by two brothers. One of them had the unfortunate nickname, The Great Pretender, but it was the octogenarian sitting across from me that knew how to compound capital. So we pitched our story, equity-like returns with bond-like volatility in a long-short U.S. equity hedge fund. That is, low double-digit returns with 6% standard deviation. Without blinking, the old man across from me said, what do I care about volatility? I just want the biggest pot of money at the end of 10 years. True story, and a really good point. The academic theory that we talked about in the Robin Wigglesworth interview and a little bit in the Allocator's Edge book review defines risk as volatility. Short-term, too, annual volatility. It was done out of convenience because it worked best with the mathematical models behind modern financial theory. Great long-term investors like Mr. Brown don't care about annual volatility. Another example, this one imaginary. If you're even tangentially related to the field of finance, you have probably been asked for investment advice. Imagine a friend or sister-in-law comes to you and says, My Aunt Gloria died and left me $100,000. I'm going to need it in 12 to 24 months to pay tuition for my twins. Should I invest it in the stock market? Your answer, I hope, would be no. Of course not. Because yes, short-term volatility, or standard deviation of annual returns, the academic's definition of volatility, and the measure of risk in modern financial theory, directionally gives you a probability of losing money in any one year even factoring in that returns aren't normally distributed, so the probability implied by the standard deviation isn't perfect, but that's why I say directionally. Now, we established in the story about your friend's inheritance from Aunt Gloria that you wouldn't put money in the stock market that you needed within a year or two, or maybe three. So why does that annual volatility metric matter? It doesn't. And we're talking about investment advisory services, wealth management, the individual, not a leveraged quant fund. I'm not going there. I'm also talking, however, to the long-only mutual fund manager who tries to manage volatility at the fund level. But as you'll hear me say a couple times in this pod, that's another podcast. So the stories from the Brown and Brown meeting and inheritance from Aunt Gloria lead to my definitions of risk. And I think the authors would agree. I have two definitions. One is the risk of permanent loss of capital, selling at-risk investments at a loss to meet current cash needs. The other risk is the risk of not meeting your investment objectives. 
finding yourself at 65 with too little money to safely retire. You rarely hear about that risk from the risk-adjusted return crowd. But now back to the book, Asset Dedication. Asset Dedication, according to the authors, takes advantage of the unique investment characteristics of stocks and bonds. Each has its own fundamentally different purpose. Every single dollar in a portfolio should be where it is for specific reasons. And technology and the products offered today with zero trading cost to boot, you can do asset dedication and you can do it inexpensively. Those few sentences alone aren't terribly helpful in understanding this book's framework. The reasons, quote unquote, the authors refer to have to do with the investment time horizon for each dollar in the portfolio, when the investor needs that cash back matched with the appropriate investment given that time horizon. The net result of this logic flow starts with something called a bond ladder, built with fixed income products, so-called because your income and return of principal are fixed. Before inflation, you know what you're going to get back. For example, what you need in the next 12 months is in cash. Yours two to four or five or six, however long you decide the bond ladder should be, is supported by a treasury bond that will provide the cash you need in each of those years at the time you need it. The bond ladder serves two important purposes. The first is reducing what is called sequence of returns risk. This refers to the scenario where, let's say you retire in December 1999 with all your money in the S&P 500. And over the next two years, you'll lose 50% of the value of your retirement. And meanwhile, you've been selling stocks at a loss to meet current cash needs in 2001 and 2002. This is also the aforementioned permanent loss of capital risk. The second thing the bond ladder does is it allows the rest of the portfolio to grow unhindered by investing myopia. The focus to a fault on short-term volatility, hedges, market timing, all the stuff that costs you money in the form of lower returns. And the bond ladder isn't just for retirees. It can be, as in the early example, for a college tuition payment, a car purchase, or putting equity down on a home. Now, once the bond ladder is set, you can invest the rest of the portfolio, sometimes called the growth portion, the at-risk portion, or just the equity portion for maximum returns over the period beyond the bond ladder. Once you do that, the volatility of that equity portion of the portfolio doesn't mean anything, or at least it shouldn't. And I know there's a human element, a risk tolerance element captured by the fields of behavioral economics or behavioral finance, an element that's going to force some investors to sell at the bottom because they can't take the pain anymore. I'm definitely talking as an econ to use Richard Thaler's vernacular to describe the perfectly logical decision maker. And what's more logical than maximizing long-term returns as an investor? You can get as detailed as you want, thinking about investing for cash needs every year beyond the bond ladder. Year 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, year 20, year 30. That's why this allocation framework is sometimes referred to by others in terms of buckets, like 6 through 10 years is one bucket and 11 through 15 is another bucket and so on. For example, I mentioned in a prior podcast that only two asset classes have outperformed the S&P 500 over periods where the data was available. One was small cap stocks going back to 1926, and the other was equity REITs going back to the early 70s. Let's drill down on small caps for this example. There are 76 rolling 20-year periods starting in 1926 and ending in 2020 using calendar year data in Ibbotson's latest SBBI book, Stocks, Bonds, Bills, and Inflation. In no 20-year period as defined did you lose money in small caps. In fact, the lowest compound annual return or geometric average was 5.74% from 1929 to 1948, a depression and a world war, a pretty rough slog. In only eight of those 76 periods, the small caps failed to outperform large caps. And six of those were sequential between 1979 and 2003. 
which followed a period of massive outperformance by small caps going all the way back to 1957. Mean reversion is difficult to time, but it is a thing, especially for long-term investors. Let's use the analogy of safe driving. If you've ever had a safe driving course or have a CDL where that training is required, drivers are taught to scan the horizon with their eyes so you see trouble and opportunities to get out of the way in time to actually do something about it. There's nothing you're going to do about that accident a car length in front of you, which is why you should be four car lengths behind the car in front of you. Yes, you're always aware of the cars around you, but your goal as a driver is to make it safely to the horizon in time for your meeting. The point is, in your growth portfolio, which let's pretend starts at 100% S&P 500, you might say, huh, I think I'm going to take a chunk out of there that I don't need for 20 years or more and put it in small caps, which return more over history. Small caps are more volatile annually than large caps. Do I care? No. I have a bond ladder to feed myself for the next five years, and I don't need that small cap money for 20 years or more. This obsession with managing short-term volatility is one of the two great cancers of the academic theory taught in business schools. As Bill Murray's character said in the movie Meatballs, it just doesn't matter. The other cancer created by modern financial theory is death by diversification and is not the fault of Markowitz because it's a misapplication of his point about diversification. The efficient frontier schools you to diversify up to a point of optimization and then stop. But what the world seems to have heard is own a little bit of everything, which is both lazy and counterproductive. But diversification is also, you guessed it, another podcast. So that drill down on small caps brings up the discussion about my own philosophy versus that espoused in asset dedication. Not a philosophical difference necessarily, just an added piece that I think is missing in asset dedication, but a very important piece, especially today. And that is adding in the valuation piece together, making what I call a time and return weighted allocation. We introduced the Markowitz mean variance optimization model called modern portfolio theory in the interview with Wigglesworth. Mean, the average annual return, Variance the volatility around that average, and optimization, optimize one for the other. I, I can't quibble with the math, and I don't care to, because I literally don't think mean variance optimization should be the goal of a portfolio management process. It's as if you told me you had a formula for turning gold bars into fertilizer. Okay, great. Amazing. There is a place in the world for fertilizer demand, but I think there are better ways to make fertilizer. So I call my framework a return optimization model, only slightly tongue-in-cheek. So let's bring asset dedication in my own framework together with two points made by pension fund god Keith Abixier. First, time horizon matters. When you need the money matters. It informs your asset allocation between bonds and stocks and other at-risk assets. Second, returns over the longer term, say 10 years, are modestly predictive, to use Keith's phrasing. There are models from the Shiller-Cape ratio that we talked about before, the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio, or the Schiller excess Cape yield, which I think improves upon the former by taking interest rates into account, or BCA's aggregate valuation model, they all have a pretty good fit with future 10-year equity returns. And that explanatory power is probably even better when the data is at extremes of the sample. For instance, Cape ratios under 20 versus Cape ratios over 35 something I call the non-linearity of linear regression. I'm sure someone has a real definition for that phenomenon. I just haven't seen it. If you know what it's called, email me through the website or at john at ktdpod.com. The bottom line is the R squared on these models, while indistinguishable from zero looking out over the next 12 months, rises with longer time horizon. And Schiller has demonstrated that the CAPE has explanatory power across both industries and countries. So while small caps and equity REITs might be an easy call versus the S&P 500, 
Non-U.S. developed markets and emerging markets require some framework for comparing long-term expected return because they haven't outperformed the S&P 500 over the entire span of history, but have for periods of a decade now and again, sometimes massively. For instance, if your expected return on the S&P 500 for the next 10 years is between 0 and 4%, but you have found a handful of foreign markets where your expected return over the next 10 years is between 6 and 10%, because your valuation models tell you so, you'd be a fool not to take advantage. And there are more mean reversion opportunities to improve on your total return than just the market's individual CAPE ratio, to choose but one option. There are mean reversion opportunities between sectors and markets like value versus growth, or emerging markets versus the S&P 500. Back in January 2000, while large-cap growth and S&P 500 investors were about to get smoked, investors in small-cap value, developed foreign markets, emerging markets, commodities, and equity REITs made a ton of money in the early aughts. Don't get me wrong, I'm not endorsing the framework where you should always have those alternative asset classes in your portfolio. I hate the pitch you see in some discount brokerage sites in the tab where they are marketing their international funds that says something like, 40% of global equity value is outside the U.S., so that's a good place to start with your international asset allocation. That's lazy and a symptom of that buy a little of everything disease I mentioned earlier, as well as a focus on reducing volatility, which we don't care about. So no, a good place to start is zero, and you as the investment advisor or individual have to make the case, based on superior long-term expected returns, to take money out of the U.S. and put it elsewhere, as a U.S.-based investor anyway. But if you make the decision to make those changes as an individual, the proliferation of exchange-traded index funds has made it easier than ever before. Make no mistake, taking money out of the S&P 500 and putting it into an index fund in South Korea or Norway or Chile is a form of active investing, even if you use index funds to execute the strategy. I call this model being actively passive, and Wigglesworth and I touched on this gray area between active and passive in our discussion, as he had mentioned it in his awesome book, Trillions. And though the asset allocation studies from Brinson to Ibbotson and all the ones in between that tried to calculate the attribution of returns between security selection and asset allocation were focused on stocks versus bonds versus cash, it's no less true for all the other reallocation options previously mentioned. Why else are these models that point you in the direction of expected returns so valuable? It has to do with one more behavior I personally don't understand, and the book Asset Dedication addresses it head on, the habit of rebalancing the portfolio which is standard practice in the 60-40 world. The idea is that at each of some predetermined time periods, securities are bought and sold to bring the portfolio back to 60-40. It's often done annually, but I've seen recommendations to do it even more frequently. To me, this behavior is pernicious. Think about it logically. In order to get the long-term average 10% return on stocks that the advisor probably typed into their financial planning software, you not only have to let compounding performance magic You have to reinvest dividends every time you receive them because that 10% is a total return number, not the price of the S&P 500 alone. Since markets are up much more often than they are down, both daily and annually, you are not, as some proponents suggest, making money because you're selling high and buying low. You're trading, incurring trading costs, and cutting the total expected return of your growth portfolio off at the knees. Let's take the rebalancing logic to its extreme. Stocks and ETFs, which trade like stocks, have a bid and an ask, or a price at which you can buy, and a lower price at which you can sell at any moment in time. So the real cost of trading isn't the commissions, which are effectively zero for individual investors now anyway, it's the bid-ask spread. That's the cost of trading. So in the first minute of trading of the new year, your equity portfolio ticks up on a trade. You're now above the 60% target for equities, as bonds haven't moved. Should you sell some? No, you wouldn't do that. 
not just because you'd have to sell on the downtick, the offer price. So why is it any more logical to do it monthly or quarterly or annually? Where's the empirical justification? As I said before, in order to get the long-term expected return from equities, equities outperforming bonds over the long term also, you have to let compounding performance magic. Asset dedication addresses this head on. The bond ladder is the bond ladder and the growth portfolio is the growth portfolio. Your only decision is whether or not to reload the bond ladder every 12 months or not at all or something in between. What I mean by that is if you start with a five-year bond ladder, at the end of 12 months of spending, you have a four-year bond ladder. Do you stick with it for another 12 months, let it get down to three years, or do you sell one year's worth of stock value right away to bring the bond ladder back to five years? I think the valuation models that provide you directionally with expected returns can help with this decision a little bit. I'll give you a relatively recent example driven by uh, market behavior, not the passage of time, but it makes the point. Imagine you started 2020 with a five-year bond ladder. Your forecast was for mid-single digit return on the S&P 500 over the next 10 years and 2% on bonds. 12 weeks later, the S&P 500 is down 30%, which should raise the 10-year expected return forecast for stocks compared to what you started with. At the same time, the 10-year treasury rate got more than cut in half, which means you've made a bunch of money on your bond portfolio, the bond ladder. It seems like you could make the case, based on expected returns, of shortening that bond ladder to four years or even three and buying more stocks. Or taking a year's worth of treasury bonds and buying investment-grade corporate bonds, which were down nearly as much as stocks in late March. And yes, corporate bonds have an expected return too. Everything in your portfolio should. Anyway, as the authors say, asset allocation isn't all bad. It's just oversold and misused. I like that. And I'll provide one constructive criticism of the book. In this section demonstrating the superior returns from asset dedication versus asset allocation, the authors refer to a Dorfman study from 1990 to 2000. If you looked at that and you extended that study another two years, you might have gotten a very different result. In general, I think any allocation framework should be compared and contrasted over a full cycle that is either peak to peak or trough to trough. So that literally covers just the first two chapters of the book. The rest goes over empirical support, covering performance of the different models that basically shows what should already be intuitive to you over the long term, stocks outperform bonds, and keeping as much in equities over the long term as you can helps your long-term performance. Remember my story about Mr. Brown. The book also touches on critical path, value at risk, and semi-variances, which is an interesting topic. It basically breaks up that annual volatility number into its upside volatility and its downside volatility, the former being better than the latter. A closing note about the power of time and valuation and the efficient market hypothesis. In author William Green's new book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, the profiled investors all have a set of guiding investment principles. One might have four principles, another might have six, or it might be eight. But two principles are common among all of them. Buy cheap and wait. Value and time. Ambixure said it already. Time horizon matters. Howard Marks said, you don't make money buying, you don't make money selling, you make money holding. Read that William Green book and try imagining any of those legendary investors bragging about their risk-adjusted returns or their sharp ratio. It's inconceivable. You can't eat risk-adjusted returns. Markets aren't efficient. We solved that riddle on this podcast with the Robin Wigglesworth interview who suggested, in defense of VMH, which is directionally correct, that efficient was just a poor choice of words. I, I agree with him 100%. But eventually the market gets there. Like in sports, there are no Hall of Famers sitting on the bench for very long. 
eventually talent outs, and in markets, value outs. Either thanks to a strategic buyer like Microsoft or a savvy long-term investor like Warren Buffett telling the world it's got the valuation wrong. It's amazing, I always say, how many good short-term decisions I make by focusing on the long-term. It's the investors that wait for value to appear to them and invest with an asset-appropriate time horizon that end up beating the market. The fact that so few active investors succeed in doing these two simple things shows you how few are econs. How do I summarize it all? One, buy good values or don't buy at all, remembering that value is relative. Two, avoid leverage. And three, ignore volatility other than to take advantage of it. Have a great weekend.